1: I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the
0: future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Barrett, Duncan Barrett, and today I'm joined by a very special friend all the way from Langley. It's Carlos Felix Miranda.
1: Ah, very nice.
0: Uh, th- th- I was wondering what you were going to say, and I'm honoured to uh, have been called Felix.
1: Uh, he's, he's one of my favourite Bond characters, so thank you very much for that. Uh, what a great introduction.
0: I should have uh, introduced you with, um, since we're, you know, we're greeting each other with one of those kind of code, coded phrases. Uh, There's a great one in Goldeneye, isn't there? In London, April's a spring month. Yes, exactly.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and the American guy who isn't who isn't Felix Leiter for some reason. I don't I never quite understood that. He seems like he should be, but for whatever, maybe legal reasons or some reason anyway he isn't, but he's he kind of fulfills that role.
1: No, he's not, and he's the CIA agent and I can't remember his name even though I've seen Goldeneye 8 billion times and he shows up again in Tomorrow Never Dies. So he's definitely the CIA oh, does agent. He? Oh, yeah, yeah. So he that. shows up, he shows up again in right. Tomorrow and Never Dies. Yeah. Um, yeah. and, and yeah, but for whatever reason, he's not Felix, which is very odd to me.
0: Very strange. Very strange. Very strange. Um, but yes, we are talking, we are recording, as it happens, I didn't realise this, this is a, a, a strange fluke, we are recording on James Bond Day. I didn't even know there was such a day, but this is the day 59 years ago today, uh, when Dr No was first released, so uh, officially christened James Bond Day. Um, and I guess we're going to just have a chat really about, uh, in particular, our man Bashir, is the is the obvious one here, and kind of how that episode leans on the sort of Bond franchise and the Bond heritage. Um, but also, I just thought we could talk a little bit about kind of what it is about Bond and Star Trek that have made them endure. These are two franchises that have both lasted for you know nearly sixty years, um, and that's quite unusual. And yet, and in some ways, there are points of comparison between them. In other ways you might say Bond and Star Trek are an unlikely match. Um, and yet that episode, Alman Bashir is absolutely, a uh, a fan favorite. Yeah.
1: I mean, completely. It is amazing. Um, I thought that this morning I, as a massive Bond fan, uh, you know, I had no idea that there was a James Bond's day. And I think, I don't know if they had one last year, you know, I follow all of the main, like, you know, fan accounts, um, um, on, on Twitter and things like that and I don't remember ever seeing a James Bond day I don't know if now with like you know officially they have like Star Trek day and then Batman day and like I don't know if it's like the new the new like if you have like a hot property uh like that you just have to have a day but yeah
0: I, had, I hadn't picked that up today and so I, I saw it was a, an auspicious day to have to record this conversation absolutely and our man Bashir also I hadn't realised impeccably timed I sort of had a vague sense that it came out around the time that GoldenEye was, uh, was in yeah. the offing and that that was a reason to sort of capitalise on this it actually came out within a week of uh, GoldenEye was released on the 21st of November 1995 and this episode aired on the 27th so six yeah. days later so that was pretty canny planning on the part of uh, someone in the DS9 writers room or production room to kind of sync those up like that obviously right. Now, now we've got James Bond and we've got the big Bond film finally after this massive um, delay due to the pandemic finally opening. I went to see it last night. Have you seen it yet, Carlos?
1: I, I, I have not. I, I'm going tomorrow. I'm going tomorrow. I, um, I, I have to be honest. I have been a little bit <clears throat> freaked out about going to a theatre. I have not gone to a theatre uh, in, in, in over two years. Um, mm. That's not true. My family and I went to go see in the Heights in a tiny in a tiny movie theater in Fort William in the Highlands on like a Friday at eleven, knowing that we would be the only people in this theater so and we were so aside from that movie, I haven't been to a theater um in two in in well over yeah, in like basically two years and and as a massive bond fan um I just i don't know i I'm like really. I don't know. I do like. It's because of the pandemic and because of the idea of sitting in the dark with a bunch full of strangers, not knowing who's wearing a mask, who's not, in an unventilated room. Like I, I haven't been able to like overcome that one hurdle. Um, and but but I I bit the bullet and I'm going tomorrow at a twelve o'clock show, like
0: a t- like midday show. <laughs> twelve noon, right? Yeah. <laughs> because that's no time to die right
1: you're
0: not going to catch anything my favourite reaction my
1: favourite my favourite also by the way I also think that my fear from the movie theater I was talking to my wife because my wife finds it really odd that I didn't go see Bond at, like, midnight. One of, her, one of her earliest memories of us being together was me dragging her to go see Casino Royale at 11.59 the night it came out because Alicia and I had been together roughly the same amount of time. So she's like, why aren't you going? Like, what's going on? And um, I was telling her that um, I... Many, many years ago, I read Stephen King's The Stand, and I don't know if you've ever read The
0: Stand. I've seen the TV version years years back, like nineties. Right, right. I guess was it early two thousand something like that. Yeah, but no, I've never read well, it. For, for those listeners that have
1: never read the um, the book, one fun fact: it's loosely the structure of the book is what the show Lost is based on. And there's a lot of characters mm-hmm. in the stand in, in 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 the stand that are that are like the the foundations for many characters on Lost. But anyway, they, there's a, they, in the stand there is a massive like virus that basically wipes out a good chunk of the population and that's what kickstarts starts the whole book. Yeah. And there is a, a very in the first, I don't know, in the first couple of chapters, one of the characters goes to a movie theater and the last line of the chapter and it's a, and it's a, and it's a virus that spreads through like through the air and in it, it's he goes to a movie theater and Stephen King writes something like you know the movie starts and a few rows behind him someone starts coughing and that really mm. freaked me out when i first read, when i read the book i don't know like 15 20 years ago mm. and for whatever mm. reason that really stuck with me and i'm not a germaphobe i'm not a paranoid person or anything like that and like honestly i was telling my wife I, like i had that like like image from that book about a virus that wipes out a good chunk of the population in the back of my mind. And so I haven't been able to overcome it, but I'm doing it for Bond
0: tomorrow at 12 o'clock. You're doing it for Bond. Yeah. I'm doing it You've for Bond. You've got to be brave. You've got to risk it. Well, Ooh. I I have been to the cinema a couple of times uh since the pandemic, but I have to say I was quite shocked. This is the only time, because I saw it last night, this is the only time I've been in a cinema that was actually pretty much full. And I think they were leaving... Ga- I think they were leaving uh like it, there were gaps between people if you know what i mean so it wasn't mm-hmm. actually full but it was as full as you know they'd sold all the tickets they were allowed to sell or that they decided yeah, yeah. they were allowed to sell. and it was quite um an unusual experience really i didn't feel too worried because i ended up because i booked at the last minute the only seat that was left was right at the front in the middle right, which yeah, was yeah. an extremely because this film is like nearly three hours long was yeah, a That's a lot of time uh, time to dive. Training. That's a lot of time. (laughs) It is. It's true. Yeah, (laughs) a lot of air can be circulated that amount of time. But um, so I saw this film weird, like from a very weird angle, where everything was like huge and right above my head, Uh, and I I suppose I wasn't so aware of the number of people in the room because they were all behind me. But um, yeah, that's an interesting one. I I think because there was this big thing before, wasn't there, about whether Tenet was going to be the movie that was going to save cinema, and it didn't really. My sense is that people are like you saying, right, this is the one where I'm going to go for it because there's been so much anticipation for this film and so much excitement for it. Mm. Um, and I won't, but- uh, I won't spoil it in any way, but, um, but I, I, loved it. I mean, I think most, it's, you know, it's had pretty good, uh, good reviews on the whole. I think you'll enjoy it. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, and it's the end, it's the end of an era. You know, it's wrapping up Daniel Craig's era. And before that, you know, when this Star Trek episode was coming out, it was the sort of start of a, a kind of a soft reboot for Bond, wasn't it? Because Pierce Brosnan was, <laughs> Bond was a bit in the doldrums at that stage. And the idea was that yeah. Goldeneye was going to come and, and sort of uh, turn things around a bit. So that there are you know, two sort of pivotal moments in this franchise. I suppose both moments where the franchise thinks to itself, "What, what are we going to be going forward? Because, you know, yeah. obviously you've got, Sean Connery in the 60s you've got the original novels um, and then at some point this decision to recast and to you know say we can carry on making this even as our leading man ages out gives the opportunity in a way to go in slightly different directions so I grew up really with the Roger Moore films GoldenEye was the first Bond film I saw in the cinema but I grew up watching the Roger Moore films on VHS. That was sort of James Bond for me. That's quite a different take, really, uh, on who this character is, much less true to the novels in a way. Um, Weirdly, in some ways, I thought a little bit more, maybe Armand Bashir is quite indebted to that era in that it is quite cheesy. He's quite a sort of, He's not the ruthless one he's the kind of debonair, charming sort of flirty one Garrick, if anything, is more the sort of Connery bond or the Craig bond. Do you know what i mean he's he's the kind of the spy with a a bit of an edge and and you know sort of dark side to him um but it's interesting, so you know it's a franchise that can kind of reinvent itself and I think um without wanting to say anything about the plot of no time to die, I think it does sort of raise a real question because it pushes things forward in many different ways that I think now. They say they're searching for the new Bond, you know, imminently, there's going to be a new Bond film. It, this is not a spoiler, but at the very end, it does, you know, you do get up on the screen, James Bond will return. Now, we don't know when, where, who, you know, any of the details, and I don't think they do either. But it does sort of raise this question of what What does this franchise do moving forward? Can it reinvent itself any more than it already has done with Daniel Craig? And Star Trek, of course, has always reinvented itself. Um but Star Trek, for Star Trek, I think it's easier because it's less tied to, although it's a product of the 1960s in the same way. And, you know, the original series does have a lot of that kind of, um you know, slightly, it can be slightly psychedelic at times. It can be, uh, there's all the mini skirts. There's the, you, you know, there are lots of sort of trappings of that era. But Star Trek was kind of able to transcend all of that. Bond, I think, has to engage with it to some extent so whether it's the kind of misogyny whether it's the kind of because it is this kind of um model of masculinity one way or another and it can kind of deconstruct that but at one level it also is somewhat celebrating it you know it is kind of an action franchise built around this this man who is quite um this is the first of a few episodes we're going to do on primitive culture looking at these kind of I'd say slightly troubled masculine <laughs> characters in a way and the ways that they, that they interact with Star Trek. And I think, you know, if you're doing Bond in 2021, you have to find a way of engaging with that. And even the Craig movies, I think, have been variable in, in terms of how they've sort of succeeded in doing that. So I think it's interesting. You know, is it a franchise that, I mean, so far, you know, this is what, film 25, they do seem to have been able to move with the times. Each era gets its own bond, just as each era gets its own Star Trek. But um is there something about it being tied back to that original... Thing that it sprung from, which means that these kind of debates about can we have a female bond? Uh, can we have an American bond? Yeah. yeah I don't know. I mean, my instinct is, is no. I think there is something kind of quintessentially British about bond. And I think there is something quintessentially male about bond. And I'm not sure, not to say that you couldn't have great spin off films about some of those female characters, especially in this film. There's some great female characters you could easily, uh, you know, happily watch further adventures of, but that character is very specifically a slightly, you know, a complicated, slightly troubled, masculine British type. And I'm not sure if you remove that, I, I don't know what you're left with almost.
1: Yeah, you know, um, I was once at a cocktail party and uh, Barbara Broccoli was at this cocktail party. And being the massive Bond fan that I am, I'm like, that's Barbara Broccoli and I'm going to go talk to her. And I ended up having like a, a really lovely conversation with her for, I don't know, like 20 more than, I mean, it was a long conversation, it was like 20, 30 minutes. Hmm. And she said something on this point to me that it was about, that there was always tension between when they looked at a new bond, hmm. um, of moving the franchise forward with the times and reinventing the character, not just with each new film, or like evolving the character, not just with each new film, but with each new each new actor, while at the same time ensuring that they were being true, whatever that means, to the original character and the original film from the 60s and 70s, because that's what, that's where their nostalgia was. That's where people think mm-hmm. of Bond. They think of Connery. They think of Moore. You know, uh, in our generation now, I'm the same with you. My Bond, my Bond was, and I have a funny story about this. My Bond was Pierce Brosnan and Goldeneye. I think you and I are the same age, mm-hmm. right? And and um, so the the first Bond that I really experienced, and not just the film itself, but like the entire media hype around it, was Goldeneye, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and it was a really interesting piece of. Insight in talking to her again. This was like oh my god. I don't know. This was like for three or four years ago, um, of this kind of tension between wanting to evolve the character, wanting to move with the times. You know, she's a female. She's extremely intelligent, very articulate. Understands. You know, the misogynist dinosaur, to quote M in Goldeneye, uh, that that Bond is. But at the same time, he is a. You know, he, she didn't say she didn't say this to me. But you know, he's he, he's a product, right? He's they're, they're selling movies. They're selling toys. They're selling, you know, merchandise or selling. Um, but they, um, you, you know, so they have to evolve it. But at the same time, they have to, you know, kind of stick to what people know and love and associate with the character. And I think that they're, again, I haven't seen No Time to Die. Um, but, you know, I think, I think that you really see a lot of that tension in Daniel Crick because it is 2021. Mm. You can't have Bond. You know, there's that really famous scene, What is it in Goldfinger when he slaps the the woman in like uh, uh, on the behind and he goes, Excuse us, it's man talk time, you know? And you're like, Oh my god, that you know, like you can't, like, like, not only is that not right, like, you cannot do that, you know? And so having him you know, that tension is, was really interesting and to have her come directly from like talking to her about it, I thought was a really interesting, uh, like she, they, they don't really, I've never heard her talk like that in any of the behind the scene things or any of the interviews. And it's that tension of moving it forward while at the same time. And so you're going to land somewhere in the middle always.
0: Definitely. Well, I mean, I did have a couple of times watching the movie last night, the new one. I, I did sort of ask myself, is this character James Bond anymore? Do you know what I mean? Because I think they they go so far, and Daniel Craig does such a great job of, and the writing as well, I think, of kind of pushing what that character can be, that there was a certain point where I sort of thought, is this just Daniel Craig playing an interesting character who's a spy? And Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, it seemed yeah, to yeah. go slightly beyond the formula. And I suppose that's the... I mean, one of the reasons that Our man Bashir can work so well is it is such a established formula do you know what i mean the kind of mm. beats are there the the kind of, there's the one liners there's the sexy ladies there's the do, do you know what i mean like they mm. it, it's very easy to spoof because and in that kind of Roger Moore era in particular and also for Piers Brosnan's later films, I think, it's almost self-spoofing at times. Okay. You know, Bond kind of treads a fine line between taking itself quite seriously, which the, the Craig movies, I'd say, do on the whole take themselves more seriously. Although, you, you know, now, now and then it goes a little bit fanciful in some ways. And, you know, previous Bond films that have just been... Uh, kind of ludicrous. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah, they don't take things seriously. Enough. I mean, the last of the Brosnan ones was a bit like that, wasn't it? With the invisible car and all this kind of stuff and people yeah, were just yeah. rolling their eyes, you know? Um So I think it's interesting if it, if you have something that so much of the appeal is wrapped up in the formula, you know, you get the Bond girls, you get the song, you get the, you know, not just the song, but the kind of video element of the song, you get all these kind of different Sort of features that you're expecting, you get the car chase, you get the you know the fist fight, you get you get all the kind of different elements. Is that quite constraining? Because it it makes it very easy to parody, but it makes it harder to innovate in some ways. And you mm-hmm. could say the same about Star Trek. I mean, when Nicholas Meyer was doing the Wrath of Khan, he went back and watched all the old Star Treks, and he was very keen to get away from any of that. You know, any of that stuff, basically any of the kind of trappings of what people thought this show was about in terms of, you know, the design or the kind of noises, the sound effects, or do you, you want know I mean all this sort of stuff mm. around it? Um, and I think Star Trek has really managed to, you know, reinvent itself and, and, and change those elements while keeping something kind of central. But, um, for Bond, it's definitely, it's a challenge because the formula is so big a part of the appeal. And especially in the films, actually. I mean, I would say uh, I've read a few of the books in the last couple of weeks as well. The books, to me, feel much more varied. They feel mm. like uh, that they're, they're quite different in terms of the kind of stories that they're telling and so on. The films feel much more sort of uh, structured to a formula, if you know what I mean. Uh, variations on a theme.
1: Yeah, no, no, I think, I think that that's right. And I think, um, but I think that's that interesting though, is that again, you know, our generation and, you know, I think we're in our, uh, er- early to late thirties, right? Uh, uh, or early, late thirties, early, late thirties. Uh, is that a thing? <laughs> is that a thing? <laughs> I'm I like it. I'll go with late, late yeah. 30s. I'm like <laughs> super late thirties. Um, yeah. You know, our Bond, at least again, my, again, my Bond was Mm. Pierce Brosnan, right? That's the Bond that I Mm. grew up with. I I have such fond memories of seeing GoldenEye for the first time. My family lived in the Middle East at the time and there were no movie theaters in Saudi Arabia where my family lived. And I was Mm -hmm. obsessed with, I had been watching all the Bond films. I got so wrapped up in GoldenEye and, um... I watched, it took me, I never watched whole Night in the theater, but what happened was I, I bought a bootleg copy. This was in 1995. Some, or someone gave me a bootleg copy, but it was one of these that, and it was filmed somewhere in Russia. And it was like someone had just placed a, a camera up by their seat. And so. I could only see about three quarters of the screen. There were Russian subtitles at the bottom, and you would see when people would get up to go to the bathroom or come back with popcorn or things, right? You know what I'm talking about? Uh-huh. So that was my experience with GoldenEye. Yeah. And, uh, and GoldenEye is still to this day my favorite, <clears throat> my favorite, um, well, top five on film. But. Um, I think I think that that will change, and I think you're right. You know, the spoofs. I think Austin Powers did a lot to, and mm-hmm. this is something that Barbara Broccoli and like Richard Wilson and things they do talk about. That Austin Powers really, there was like an awakening that Austin that that the success of Austin Powers are like, oh, we really need to get away from this because it's like a parody yeah. of a parody of a parody now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and you really see it with you know Casino Royale, even though obviously directed by. By Martin Campbell, who directed, um, Goldeneye. I mean, th- no gadgets really, uh, stripped back. It's only M and him, uh, no money penny, no Q, no nothing. And, and I think that it was, it there was like a real reaction to Austin Powers and really wanting to get away from it. And I think people who are growing up now, where Daniel Craig is the only Bond that mm-hmm. they'll know, I mean, you know, they've released what? five films in the last 15 years. Somebody on Twitter said something that like, between Spectre and listed all the Star Wars films that had been released between Spectre and No Time to Die. And it's like, five of them, you know? Um, And so I I think that people will now, growing up now, they'll associate Bond with either Craig or Brosnan. And so the next iteration of it will have, I think, the, the luxury and the benefit of really kind of moving away from the, the that kind of that history and 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 and, and some of the more like a, a lot of the elements that really are of a particular time and place and have no business being around today.
0: And I would say Armand Bashir is definitely. I, I, I think it's not a coincidence that it felt to me closer to the kind of Roger Moore movies. Because, I mean, aside from anything else, obviously they hadn't seen GoldenEye because it was released a week before they aired. So they, they'd shot their episode and written it and everything before that. So they they can't have... They can be sort of anticipating Pierce Brosnan in a way. But um I guess they'd had Timothy Dalton was the kind of previous sort of darker, yeah. uh, grittier Bond. That seems to be the... That's the sort of... Um, those are the directions you can go, aren't they? You can go lighter and, and sillier and more kind of corny and that's what leads to Austin Powers, or you can kind of go down this you know pretty gritty dark uh, kind of darker route, which is which is sort of where they went originally, I think with Sean Connery. I mean Sean Connery definitely has that sort of edge to him that you get in the books.
1: He does start that way for sure, right? You have Dr. No, you have From Russia With Love, which is amazing, I mean, an underrated Bond film. If there's anyone out here that hasn't seen From Russia With Love, you should 100%. It's, it's such a, you know, it's not what you think at all in many ways. And it isn't really until Goldfinger, where, where a lot of like, you know, Goldfinger is a classic, but it's also where a lot of like, the gadgets and mm-hmm. a lot more of the one-liners and the sexual innuendos. That's where, you know, not, not um, to say that those aren't in, in Dr. No and From Russia with love, but that's where they're like dialed up significantly and they become part mm-hmm. of what people expect. And then, you know, you get into other Connery movies where they start really becoming, um, a lot sillier, you know, diamonds are forever. And think That is mm-hmm. a terrible Bond film, great theme song but it's terrible. And so I think that Connery very much started that way. And we equate, we equate Connery bond with that like real macho, like, you know, Mm. like just like killer, you know, a lot of the comparisons of Craig being like that early Connery bond, but, Connery Bond towards the end becomes a lot sillier. And in fact, Roger Moore, when he takes over, is really building, he's a very different type of character and a very different personality, but he's building on a lot of like the, 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 I don't wanna say kookiness, but like, you know, I I don't like many of the Roger Moore films Mm -hmm. because I prefer the darker Bond. I prefer From Russia with Love. I prefer, you know, License to Kill, uh, you know, Casino Royale, that's the Bond. That I love, even though I have a soft spot for several, for, for Brosnan. Um, you know, and Brosnan is arguably somewhere between, in terms of seriousness, between Roger Moore and, um, and, and Connery. But, but I don't think, I think we equate that with Connery Bond because we, that's what we think of Sean Connery. We don't think of Sean Connery as being someone who's like silly or like, you know, he's not dressing mm-hmm. up as a clown, um, yeah. as Roger Moore did. But his later Bond films are a lot sillier than people, remember
0: and that may be an element of when you've got 25 years or 25 films of something far more years than that when you've got 25 iterations of something uh you know you tend to go back to the better ones and maybe those are the ones that stick i think goldfinger is absolutely you're right that's the one where i mean in some ways i I watched Doctor No this week for the first time. I'd never seen it before. Um, And I found that quite interesting. It felt a little bit like, I feel, watching The Cage. You know, you're watching something that is kind of almost... It's almost there, but it's not quite... The elements aren't... It hasn't quite bedded in somewhere. They haven't quite got the uh, recipe right somehow. Um, Goldfinger interestingly, is also Goldfinger came out in 1964. And in Our Man Bashir, they quite specifically say that this programme is set in 1964. So insofar as this is a James Bond programme, I suppose that is the exact Mm -hmm. moment of Bond that they are leaning into. And obviously, there is a kind of element of, you know, the Bond movies were a product of the 60s, the Bond novels were a product originally of the 50s, and then obviously going forward, you, you know, going forward through time. But so I think you've kind of got that that element there but i think goldfinger is is maybe a key one in terms of Armand bashir and the kind of the the version of bond you're right that it's capturing i mean yes that's where we get the you know the innuendo uh named ladies you know pussy galore or the, and there yeah. are brilliant ones in the ds9 episode we've got mona loves it honey bear um y- y- you know and these kind of these tropes that are like I said, they are kind of ridiculous. And some of the, um, it, you know, he has that character who's his, Mona loves it, is the, the valet with, you know, many degrees, speaks seven languages, but she sort of acts like an airhead. You, you know, she's the kind of Denise Richards we had in the Brosnan era, kind of doing the same thing, didn't we? But I mean, yes, it's it's kind of leaning into that um, that sort of fully formed formula if you know what I mean rather than those first two films I think are more you know sort of on their way there and in some ways particularly with uh from Russia with love I think that's a strength of that film in some ways is that it hasn't quite um things haven't quite bedded in in the same way as Casino Royale in the Craig era is so great because they haven't yet Brought in all that stuff. And I have to say, I had slightly mixed feelings. I know everyone loves Skyfall. Everyone says Skyfall's the best of the of the Craig films. I felt slightly ambivalent about that film because although I did really enjoy it and, you know, I thought it was brilliantly made um and I had a great time watching it at the cinema, by the end of it, I did just feel slightly uncomfortable because I felt we'd got a little bit too much of that stuff back. Do you know what I mean? You've got, yeah. suddenly you've got... Ray finds his M and he's in his sort of wood paneled room and it's, it, it all feels a little bit, and I know it was an anniversary film, they were kind of going for that. You've got the Aston Martin, which seems weirdly out of time somehow. You've, you've got this kind of, uh, it, it leaned into the nostalgia more. And I suppose one of the things that I really liked about Casino Royale was that it, it didn't do that at all. It was kind of, you know, that nostalgia basically didn't exist as far as that movie was concerned. So I guess that's the kind of, um, we sort of keep going back to this. That's the sort of dilemma for them. And certainly going forward, that's the challenge that they're going to face. Maybe they'll do a period piece. I mean, that's one thing, you know, obviously they could decide uh Bond's not going to move with the times. So they're going to do one set in... You know 1950 something i mean that would be an interesting choice
1: I, I would i
0: would love for them obviously um you know they
1: will they will hire another bond whose role will be mm. to make five to ten bond movies of course that will happen yeah. and they'll probably get a very young actor like they did i mean daniel i don't remember how old daniel craig was when he started right he was probably mm. he was in his late 30s probably because he's like in his early yeah. 50s so he's in his late 30s um going through so so they will probably but i really think that it would be amazing for them to do like a one off you know like a, mm-hmm. like an amazing maybe it's a period piece maybe it isn't but like an amazing one off that is just like this is just a one off bond film right and then afterwards we will continue and yes it's a 26 bond film but it's a one off it's not a now the other thing that i think about and i've talked about this a lot so maya um Um, My my best friend is this guy named Steven And Steven loves Bond Arguably more than Mm -hmm. me And we talk Bond I think I mean on a very very regular basis And you know We've talked about how awesome Would it be if they did an old man Bond With Pierce Brosnan Mm -hmm. back Right Pierce Brosnan Mm -hmm. looks Amazing right now he arguably looks Better now than he did at the height of Bond right could they do a You know yes it's a little cliche But like you know he's comes out of retirement for one last mission, you know? Um, and bring back some of the greatest hits from the Bond era, but really treat it as like a very dark, standalone Bond film. I think that would be amazing. Um, you know, I also think another period piece directed by, you know, Tarantino's always wanted to do a a, a Bond film. Chris Nolan always wanted to do a Bond film, but knew that he, would, he never wanted to work within the framework that the that the Broccoli's um, wanted. So he did Tenet, you know, and he even talks about it. That was my, you know, my take on Bond. Um, so I think I think a lot of people really want to play in that space, but they don't want to. Com- they either don't want to do a permutation or commit to doing a whole range of new films. So why not to Mm -hmm. play around with one or two standalone films that actually don't really have to build, you know, they're, they're building the franchise, but they don't have to be the foundation for a brand new bond. That's going to, you know, carry the Mm -hmm. franchise for a bunch of years. I think that would be a really interesting and amazing kind of take for a little while.
0: Well, I saw someone on Twitter actually commenting uh, a few days ago that they wished that in Skyfall they had got Pierce Brosnan to play the villain, basically, as, because I suppose, because you've got a villain, weirdly, as as you do kind of in GoldenEye, but, you know, you've got a villain who is a former agent who's kind of turned bad, that that would have been a... Uh, I mean, I, I, personally, I think that would have just been kind of too confusing somehow, but I, I kind of like... Well, they went at Connery to be in that movie, you know that? Yeah, yeah, at the end, right? He was going to be the... End, the, yeah. the whatever he is. Caretaker the, the, game, the, yeah. the, the caretaker yeah. of the house. And at, and at mm. the end they
1: decided, I don't even think that they asked them. if I'm not mistaken. I think that they, they were like really debating and at the end they just decided because mm. it was the 50th anniversary to your point earlier that it was mm. an anniversary film. I do think that if it hadn't been an, 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 an anniversary film, they would have pulled back a little bit of the, Oh, here's the, you know, the, mm. the, uh, the, the jets, the, the, not the jet seat, the, like the escape seat button, things like that. They would have yeah. toned that yeah. down because it is, it's not, it's not jarring. Uh, by the way, I love Skyfall. I love Skyfall, mm. right? And I, and I go back and forth, and this is a conversation that Steven and I have all the time. I go back and forth between what is my favorite Craig movie? Is it cause it, you know, on a Monday it's Casino Royale, on a Tuesday it's Skyfall, mm. right? And actually, mm-hmm. I was, uh, I mean, I think Spectre is a mess. Spectre is an absolute mess and there are phenomenal sequences and scenes within Spectre that work really well, but as a whole, I think Spectre is, is a mess um, and I think it's the weakest for sure of all the Craig films. Um, but I actually really love Quantum of Solace. I think Quantum of Solace is like an amazing action movie. It's not necessarily a Bond film you could argue, Um, but it's a great action movie and there's some like the more time that goes by the more I like Quantum of Solace and actually with that noted, I actually think, again, I have not seen No Time to Die yet, I actually think that the the single greatest Bond, Bondian sequence in the entire Craig era is in Quantum of Solace. The opera sequence in Quantum of Solace. Is beyond mm-hmm. spectacular to me. I think that it, that's probably the best single s- action sequence from a. Mm-hmm. It just no other franchise could do that. You just you, you play anybody a screen grab from that and like oh that's a James Bond film. It's just so Bondian, even though the film in- itself arguably is less so. That sequence to me is arguably my favorite, and I think the best single you know, the most the, the most bond, the best one of the best action sequences in all of the Craig era. Um sorry, I went off on a little tangent from my love of that one scene in Quantum Souls. But but I think Skyfry I the that they were they were debating, you know, putting Connery in as as um, uh, uh, is it Albert Finney that comes in um, a, in that role, and then ultimately, I don't even think they approached Connery. I think ultimately they decided that if they put Connery in there for the 50th anniversary, it would have taken everybody out of the movie immediately. Like immediately, nobody would have been. Everybody would have been like, "That's Sean Connery, and it's Bond, and it's Bond." And 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 I think they made the right call.
0: It's interesting though when you say they could do an old man Bond film. I sort of feel like No Time to Die is an old man Bond film. And granted, Daniel Craig is like, what, early 50s or something. He's not, you know, he's not aged. But in terms of being an action hero, he is definitely, you know, maybe not quite past it. He's still got it. But but they're leaning into that. And the fact that everyone else is, come, you know, these young people coming in and there's this kind of, you know, I'm sure you know all of this from the press around it, and so you know there's a new 007, and there's, there's there's all this kind of tension and these kind of new younger agents, and um and even there's quite a funny moment where there's a sort of a bit of a misunderstanding as to whether you know is he kind of being the the sort of Lothario still or, or not, or is he kind of just some old man <laughs> by now? Do you know what I mean? Is he is he kind oh, of yeah. has he still got that? Um, is that the still the sort of dynamic? So I feel like they they do lean on that quite a lot. And it's interesting, one of the other things that it made me think of in terms of Star Trek is, you know, we do have, obviously with Picard now, we've got this kind of old man Picard show. We had it with Kirk and the original series before. In some ways, I think Kirk and Bond, you know, Kirk is a bit of an American Bond. You know, he's got the kind of the way with the ladies, he's got the heroics, he's, you know, he is that kind of, he's an all American action hero in the way that James Bond is a kind of, you know, classic British action hero, if you know what I mean. And you have got, you know with kirk in the movies you've got that real uh sort of dilemma of what happens to this character when they're not young and hot anymore do you know what i mean who who are they and and that makes him you know i would say kirk movie kirk is a much more interesting character than tv show kirk and similarly i think daniel craig kind of uh you know his bond becomes more interesting as he has to kind of Moves slightly out of that shadow, if you know what I mean. Move, you know, away from that kind of set idea of exactly uh, what that what that character has to be. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's it's an interesting tension to kind of play with and to to to. I suppose what I'm saying is to make a virtue of the fact that these actors are aging. You know, one of the great things the Star Trek movies do is, okay, yeah, fine, William Shatner's got his girdle or whatever, and he's he's trying to hide his paunch, but they're not pretending that these people are not getting older do you know what i mean they mm. they're writing to it they're you know that star trek 2 star trek 6 particularly they're really and star trek 4 as well to some extent they're really leaning into the fact of you know these are not young people anymore these are you know these are middle aged people basically they're kind of leaning into that and i think that it's a bold choice and a successful one that, you know in this new bond film they're leaning into that they're not kind of pretending that you know, whatever, Sean Connery in Never Say Never Again is the same guy that he was uh, in Doctor yeah. No. Do you know what I mean? There's, there's kind yeah. of an acknowledgement of that. And that is quite a sort of modern thing. I mean, I suppose, you know, we had that um, with Logan as well, didn't we, you, you know, before Picard and lots of these shows and the Star Wars sequels as well, kind of bringing back these legacy characters. It that It almost feels a little bit like that. And, you know... <laughs> it feels like we've been waiting so long to see this film That, you know, Daniel Craig's Bond almost Is a legacy character in his own right It's been such a massive gap But um it's interesting that they're not You know, they're not just trying to sort of Soft focus him and, you know, get him in perfect shape And kind of uh Pretend that everything is As it was in Casino Royale You know, there's a kind of acknowledgement Actually, this is a chunk of time And people, you know, change over that period of time It's going to, you, you know even if you're James Bond, you know, you can't, yeah. uh, you, you can't escape from time.
1: No, no, I think you're right. And I think it's interesting that you talk about, I agree with you, by the way, that movie Kirk is infinitely more interesting than TV Kirk, like infinitely more so. And the reason I think that movie Kirk is so much more interesting and it's, and it's you're right to mention 2, 4, and 6 is Nicholas Meyer, who you who brought up earlier, <clears throat> right? Nicholas Meyer yeah. um,
0: is... Who also wrote a Bond film? He he had yeah, a, a he draft of uh, Tomorrow Never Tomorrow Dies. Tomorrow Never Dies, yeah yeah, 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 he yeah. he uh,
1: uh, he did have a draft. He he, I mean, I think he contributed to a draft of Tomorrow Never Dies. He like, sure. came in yeah. and, and worked. Uh, he was Oregon. the Phoebe Waller Bridge of that one. Exactly, exactly. Um, yeah. And he, um, you know, he um, he's obsessed with time. A, a lot of his movies and a lot of things that he writes, are like about time and specifically the passage of time and traveling through time, right? And and I think, you know, uh, arguably the Kirk of the motion picture, yes, he's 10 years older. Yes, he's an admiral. Um, is very much TV Kirk, right? He's like longing to be back to TV Kirk and like, you know, karate chopping, you know, Klingons and... Kissing, you know, Orion slave girls, but I think you introduce Nicholas Meyer, who's like, that's not the Kirk I'm interested in writing. Time has passed; yeah. these characters are—he's now fifty years old, and yeah. um, and that makes him infinitely more interesting. And I think, you know, maybe um, the, the passage of time and moving with the characters also. You know, I'm a lot older; I'm almost forty now. When I was mm. twenty-four or whatever it was, when Casino Royale came out. So I've I've also experienced a sheer amount of time. So I'm like, this is the first time that I'm living with a character and kind of seeing. I'm in such a different space, in such of a different place in my life now that No Time to Die is as opposed to Casino Royale. And you want the character yeah. to have grown. You don't want the character, at least, at least I, I I don't want the character to be like to be frozen in time. You know, I don't want mm-hmm. you know he uh, started five. Where he's TV Kirk again, right? Rock climbing and trying to get the girl, and like, and that's Shatner through and through, right? Uh, it's funny enough, obviously, the weird connection between. Talking about Sean Connery and how Shatner really wanted Sean Connery to play Cyborg, you know? Sure, yeah. yeah. Uh Talking about Bond and starter connections, and he they really gunned for him, but Sean Connery decided to. Uh, pass on Frederick five and make Indiana Jones the last crusade I think you made the right mm-hmm. choice let's be honest Good choice there yeah, uh, that a Good choice, good choice. Um, But no but I mean I think, I think that you know t- To your point I think we are If you're going to spend 15 years With a character you want them to grow you don't want Them to be static and I think Nicholas Meyer really Brought that to the franchise despite the Fact that like you know in Star Trek 3, you kind of get the action-oriented Kirk again. And in Star Trek 5, the, they try to do it very poorly.
0: I think there's also... It's interesting when you say, you know, I hadn't really thought about that, but you're right, you know, we have aged. Uh, you know, for me, certainly the bonds that I've seen in the cinema from Goldeneye when I was, what, like a teenager, I guess, sort of young teenager, through yeah. to No Time to Die when, yeah, you're right, we're sort of approaching 40. Um and yet, this is something that we're still going to see. You know, I I have seen pretty much. I think I have seen every Bond film within that span in the cinema, and there are many franchises that I haven't. I didn't. I don't think I even saw Into Darkness in the cinema necessarily. I mean, like, you didn't like, miss, anything. You you know, didn't there, miss there, anything. No, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen it since then. Don't worry. But um, if I did see it, it was obviously it just you know my mind wiped it somehow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was too traumatic. But. um You know, they are these kind of, you know, they are tentpole films for a reason. They are big cultural moments. But I suppose they also raise this kind of question, you know, who are we and why do we keep coming back to this thing? And what does it mean? And I think Armand Bashir sort of really drills into that a bit insofar as you've got Garrick, who's sort of saying... Uh This is more information than I want about you, Bashir. You know, I don't want to see your fantasy life playing out like this, where you get to snuggle these women and you, 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 you oh, know, the kind did, of the pleasures. <laughs> well, of course he did. Of course he did. But, you know, the pleasures of it and this idea that there's something sort of shameful about it, that Bashir, it, you know, it's a private, uh that there is something a little bit sort of arrested development in it. Do you know what I mean? That it's a kind of boys, you know, as the woman says in Golden Knights, boys with toys. It's kind of there's something slightly childish about this. And I do think, you know, with Bond, there are these kind of questions about what, you know, what does it represent? I mean, my partner hates James Bond films, uh, and won't, well, she, she has seen a couple of them with me, I think, but basically, you know, and she thinks, and I think this is a legitimate argument. They're sexist. They're, you know, they're violent. They're kind of, they're celebrating the wrong things a lot of the time. And I do think even the Craig era, you know, if you have something like, uh, I quite like Quantum of Solace, but the Gemma artist in character in that, the way that character is treated. Yeah. The women are often seen as quite sort of disposable. I think this, the new one does a lot to turn all of that around, uh, but it's been quite a long time coming. But so I suppose there is this sort of question around what does the culture that we consume say about us? And if we keep going back to this thing that is is quite sort of backwards in some respects um does that say something bad about us as, as sort of as garrick is uh is intimating and there's also this kind of question because *GoldenEye* is known today not just as a movie but very famously a video game yeah. uh, because that was a massive breakout hit of a video game uh that you know can only have helped the movie but but also just in its own right as a game it's a huge kind of cultural impact and obviously in our man Bashir we have Bashir you know Bashir is basically playing a video game so there's that whole sort of question of like you know should grown men be playing video games and do you know what I mean all this kind of stuff and is there something a bit silly about this is this a bit shameful is this something is it something to be proud of uh, in the way that you know we have Daniel Craig at the Olympics as a sort of great British export and obviously a massive success story for Britain or is this something that uh, you know, is I don't know a relic, a dinosaur? Is it you, you know, as M says, is there something um, unpalatable about it? I suppose that can't be redeemed.
1: I think the answer is yes to all of it. <laughs> right? I, I think it is. I think it is, and I think it goes back to that tension. And I think that there is a uh, you know, as as Natalia says in Goldeneye, it is boys with toys, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I think Garrick, yes, at the end, Garrick kind of comes around and is just like, oh, you know, this, i can starting to see the appeal of this. But, you know, he is kind of that, like, contemporary, yes, 1995, so not contemporary anymore, mm-hmm. but he was that contemporary sensibility of, like, this is ridiculous. Like, what are you doing? You know? Uh, and, and I love him always comparing it to the Obsidian Order, being like, this is not mm-hmm. how like, spying actually is. And, it, and it's mm-hmm. not the way spying actually is, right? Not at all. And so it is a fantasy. Yeah. Now, to your point about like, is it the right kind of fantasy? Should we be fantasizing about this? That's a whole nother discussion, right? But I think that the character and bringing it back to our man Bashir, I think Bashir is one of the greatest success Star Trek like success stories for Star Trek. Right? Mm. He started out to he started out being this like, you know, Wesley Crusher esque type. Know it all, really annoying, really eager, and and they wrote him that way, and and you know Alexander they played him that way, but they grew him into such an amazing character. He really grew, mm-hmm. and that and that first season, you really get the sense that he's you know he's in his early twenties. He's really green. He's like he's like out there for frontier medicine. You know, says all the wrong things with. Miles with Captain Sisko, with Kira, with Dax, and by the end, you know, they'd all take a bullet for him, type of thing, right? And and he mm-hmm. he grows and he matures tremendously. But I think, you know, there is there is that kind of arrest development in Bashir up to a point, right? And I don't necessarily think that there's nothing wrong with mm-hmm. that. I mean, I still think that one I love the character of Bashir. I love the character that Bashir becomes. I love seeing his arc. I I think his friendship with Miles is hands down the greatest and most realistic and most uh uh I think realistic f- like male friendship in all of in all of Star Trek. Yes, people you know point to Kirk and Spock and you know there's something very iconic about that friendship. But there is you know there is something so familiar and so um just wonderful and human about Miles and and Bashir, right? So mm-hmm. I love the fact that Bashir grows, and I think again he's one of these success stories. You know, you can point to so many other characters, whether it's Wesley, where they where they tried Harry Kim, where they didn't even try, you know. Um, and I think Bashir really is a success story. And I think there is definitely a, you know, I think Armin Bashir is a turning point for the character. There are very few. Few Bashir centric episodes that really, that really revolve around him before this. And so I think there's almost like Mm -hmm. this is the turning point for Bashir. You know, our man Bashir is like that the character was one way before and then this character was another way after and i think this you know ron moore talks about this interview that we were talking about before we started recording in the hollywood reporter how like this was really not just a turning point for bashir but that the audience started really seeing him in a very different light after him i was like oh this is actually a character that we like and has great interpersonal relationships and can save the day and so i think that yes you know going back to your your questions i think it's d all of the above and, but bringing it back to, to this particular episode and what it means for Deep Space Nine and what it means for this character, it's a real turning point for the character. And it's where he really begins to be, I think, a fan favorite.
0: It's interesting that, isn't it? And I suppose the things that I was getting at about, you know, the kind of the, the problems in inverted commas with Bond are... You know, it is around this sort of idea of toxic masculinity, I suppose. You, you know, Bond is a kind of model of masculinity. And and in many ways, certainly historically, it, it is quite a toxic one, I think, arguably. Bashir, early season Bashir, is another kind of model of toxic masculinity in a way. Do you know what I mean? Like he's laying on too strong. He's kind of, he's he's quite creepy with Dax. He's quite um, inappropriate. Do you know what I mean? There is, oh. there is that. And obviously he kind of grows out of that and becomes this... Uh, yeah, as you say, much more appealing, much more rounded, um, character. And yet here in this episode, which is part of that, it is leaning into, you know, it's, it's pretty explicit. He, he enjoys this because he, he gets to play the action hero and he also gets to, okay, we see him snogging them. We have to assume we know what Quark's holo are like that, you know, it goes yeah, a bit yeah. further than that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And there's this funny thing, um, in, in the subsequent episode where this gets picked up on which is the one where Odo is having a sort of um, relationship with a woman for the first time. And he goes to get some advice um, from Bashir. And he says, he has some line, he's, he says something like, why is he... he what is it you you know why why does she she's going to run off with you or or something and and he says it's you know it's just that kind of program as in like that's that's part of the appeal of this program do you know what i mean that is his kind of that is his fancy is a kind of slightly sleazy uh sex fancy and that's why it's probably so awkward that suddenly all his co-workers have like plopped into his uh you know his sexy fantasy <laughs> if you know what i mean and there's this weird thing that actually i didn't realize this but apparently this was the first episode that was shot after he and then our visitor got together as a couple and their chemistry yeah. in it is amazing i think it's you know yeah, it's yeah. really it's kind of noticeable it, it sort of zings off the screen and she is fantastic in that role i just think she is you know she is brilliant all the cast are brilliant in this all episode they really they, they have she does so in particular much and
1: they're having yeah, so much exactly. fun they're
0: but they're doing it really well as well. Especially her and and Avery Brooks, I think. And and also I just think Alman Bashir is a passable Bond film. Do you know what I mean? Like it's got it's got a decent plot. You know, in that sort of hokey era of the kind of Roger Moores or whatever, you've got this great villain character with Dr. Noah. He's got a plan which is not really any more mad than plenty of Bond villains that we've had, you know, like in Moonraker Ooh. or something like that. He basically wants to, you know, uh you know exterminate the human race and then start from scratch so it's sort of got not just the the trappings you know the the sexy names the card games the gambling sort of all this stuff it's also got the it's got effectively like em and tanner in odo and eddington up in ops Mm. who are doing all the sort of basil exposition stuff and explaining what's going on so you've got that kind of perspective on it as well um but it just works incredibly well as a bond you know as a you know Not just a parody, but as an actual story in that genre, I think. It kind of works on its own terms, almost.
1: Yeah, I mean, and you hear that MGM, even though they weren't, you know, I think Ron Moore talks about that nothing nothing happened, but that MGM sent them a note being like, uh, this is getting too close to comfort. You know, like that's how good it was. You're completely right. It is, it is as enjoyable. And they, the, the thing that I think works so well in that episode is that it's so Star Trek in so many ways. Yes, it's like a, a clever take on the malfunctioning Holox Suite. It wasn't a malfunctioning Holox Suite. You know, they needed to store, their transporter you know their transporter buffer or whatever it was their transporter data in the only place that could handle it and that was the holosuite Um, and so it's a clever way of not being yet another tng-esque uh-oh the holodeck's broken again uh, you know, you'd be surprised. You, you, I don't know. After TNG, you're like, no, holidays should be on starships. You know, like, but, but, um, but it's it was a clever way. But it's so Star Trek, yet it's also such like a you know loving homage, not really parody, but it's like it's such like a a, a, a loving homage by Ron Moore in particular, who grew up and who talks about growing up with both you know Connery and Roger Moore films. And it just works so well. And I mean, you know, it's in Deep Space Nine's fourth season and the fourth season I think is a, it's a super strong season of DS9, super strong. There's so many amazing episodes and so many episodes that go so far in terms of positioning all of the pieces on the chessboard of what is to come Mm -hmm. in the fifth, sixth, and seventh season. Yet this kind of, I wouldn't call it a bottle show, but, you know, but definitely this kind of standalone story that has nothing to do with what's with happening with the Klingons or the Federation or even the founders of the Dominion happens to be one of the best episodes of the season.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's true. And it does. It, it is a kind of a standalone, you know, it is kind of a bottle show insofar as there's no, there's hardly any guest cast or anything, you know, it's, it's the kind of, uh, it was expensive to make, though, and it, it took an extra day i think of shooting than than usually yeah, it's yeah. like one of the most complicated episodes they had to film understandably of course it doesn't have any of the bond uh, one of the things that's noticeable about it if you think about it is uh so it's got a lot of the bond trappings it has no exteriors at all because it's all interior which is it's very anti-bond if you think of you know bond is it, a lot of it is about the kind of outdoorsy mm-hmm. uh stuff and the kind of jet setting and so on and in a way they're doing that on a tv budget where you know yeah, you dress the set differently, um, but they can't have the kind of grand sweeping uh, elements of Bond. You don't get a song, sadly. You do, you do get a kind of jazzed up, Bondified version of DS9 the theme, which is quite fun. Um, but it's interesting. I think you're right that it taps into some of these bigger things especially when you think about it in relation to the ongoing stories I mean obviously for Bashir the big thing is this is kind of the start of the whole section 31 story in a way it's this idea of this is a guy who fantasizes about being a spy Mm -hmm. and what what you know what does that fantasy mean how safe is it where does that lead him do you know what I mean does that make him sort of vulnerable to to being taken in that direction you've also got things like the fact that um the guy who saves the day is Eddington who we're going to find out fairly soon actually is a spy weirdly mm. uh, and I've always sort of thought you know he could have uh, it's interesting he didn't just let them all die <laughs> you know it might have been a good way to get rid of uh quite a lot of people who are likely to to come in the marquee way in future I guess that would have been a bit a bit callous but it is interesting that he's the kind of hero of the day really and then quite soon we're gonna discover he's not who he says he was um and you've also got this element i was quite struck watching it today that dr noah the way that he talks is very much the way the dominion talks you know he he says i believe in an orderly world what he wants is to bring order to chaos just like the borg queen just like the the founder you know it's this idea of uh be, and this kind of genocidal aspect that the, again, both the Borg and the Dominion have that, you know, they're very happy to kill thousands, millions of people. They want everything to be orderly and safe and kind of, um, uh, you know, everything in its place somehow. There is this kind of, so it seems to me there's a slight thematic link there with the, with what, what this villainy is that we are fearing. Uh, somehow there's a kind of thread there, even in this ridiculously camp over the top performance that Avery Brooks gives, which is wonderful. You know, there's there's something to it. And I do think he's a great villain. I do think he would, you know, stand up. He is very obviously modelled on, you know, Dr No, Blofeld. you know, he's got the Nehru jacket, he's got the kind of stylings. But uh to me, he absolutely works as a Bond villain in his own right. And I think it's interesting that he kind of slightly ties into these threads that, as you say, are going to be running through the series going forward. And of course, they were, you know, at the end of the episode, Bashir even gets the line, you know, he gets the line, uh, Julian Bashir's secret agent will return. Um, and sadly, he doesn't really, I think, because of that, those legal proceedings, but I think they were thinking they'd be, you know, coming back to this well, several times. Instead, you know, you get that one other episode where they they kind of touch on it briefly um i don't really go into it a bit like with next gen they had the same thing with sherlock holmes you know they did their sherlock holmes episode and then it was years before uh they were able to you know bring moriarty back and do another one because of the kind of legal questions um around that but of course what we do get is this leads into vicks i think because you know it's the Mm. same kind of era with Vic fontaine and it's also it's this guy you know we talked about felix Leiter in bond uh julian's friend who writes all these holiday programs is a guy called felix um who is obviously named after felix Leiter. so he's given him this bond program <laughs> then for legal reasons they're not allowed to keep playing that one so then he gives him uh Vic's lounge instead which has a lot of the same pleasures of that era and you, you know the kind of um you, you know the the nostalgia of it of, of going back uh, into that period in time. And I suppose it, it is, you know, as much as we're talking about how Bond has moved with the times, Armand Bashir is very much set in that kind of 1964, uh, Goldfinger Bond era. He's not, you know, he's not doing Bond in the 80s with Roger Moore. He's doing, and he's not doing Bond in the 90s with Piers Brosnan. He's doing, he's doing Bond in the 60s. So there is that kind of, um, he's not even doing book Bond in the 50s. He's, he's doing, he is doing, Sean Connery's world of Bond, if you know what I mean. That's what they're trying to capture there. And a lot of that, I suppose, is about the nostalgia. Um, And it is quite certainly a a strange coincidence that, you know, we have in the very next season, Trials and Tribulations, going back to the 1960s for Star Trek and leaning into, you know, the miniskirts and the kind of the lighting and all that sort of stuff. And here you've got going back to James Bond in the same era and kind of um, the pleasures of that.
1: But it makes sense, doesn't it? Because, I mean, Ira Burr, Ron Moore, all of those guys are children of the 60s and 70s. So that's who they grew up with, you know? If, you know, it's, if I was writing Star Trek, it, one of the reasons why I love Picard so much is, one, I love the story and I love what they're doing with him. And I love the world building that they've done with Picard. But so much of the enjoyment, and you see it on Twitter, is the throwback to 1990s star trek and next generation in particular it's that nostalgia mm. the people that are writing and making picard now what they're nostalgic for what they loved is 1990s star trek right so you know every single time terry metallis posts a picture on twitter of like here's the you know here's the bridge and it's like a you know an up an updated acutogram, and you're like oh my god amazing it's because they're playing on our on on, on on what we loved so to me mm-hmm. there's no it makes all the sense in the world that iraber and those guys were and they were all guys um you know what when, when when they were thinking about these things and when when they were playing or when the characters were playing around in their nostalgia it was Bond it was Vic. It was, you know, the 1960s rat pack. And, 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 and yeah. And, and I think one, it makes all the sense in the world. And two, you know, they, this episode again is silly. But to your point, you know, Sloan refers to this episode, uh, mm-hmm. when he's talking to Bashir, you know, it's because of this episode where we meet the character of Felix who then gives him Vic to your point. So yeah. I think that this is a very, It's a great episode and everyone loves it. But actually, in many ways, there's a lot of like the raw material that is then processed in a lot of different ways from Deep Space Nine emanate from this one episode, which I think is really fascinating. You know, again, Sloan and, and 31, Vic and everything that goes with that. Um, I, I, I would like to point out that you bring one up, but I think that there are two episodes that, that where he is, where they refer, they don't talk about our man oh, Bashir. Right. But obviously, there's a simple investigation because I looked this up, where they're where they're going into this program again in Bashir, and they talk about the program, and everyone's getting rolled.
0: And O'Brien's complaining, and he has to yeah. play Falcon again, and he doesn't exactly you know, exactly. And, and then he tries to take Odo's part because he gets to again, you know, talking about the kind of sexy nature of the program. He's like he gets to steal this woman, and I was sort of it, th- this raises all these questions about, you know, does Keiko know what Miles gets up to in the Holly Suite, and you, you know, what are the boundaries around this kind of stuff? Yeah. But, um, yeah 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 but is there another one i didn't i I don't think i'd realize there was another one yeah in change in change of heart yeah in change of heart
1: bashir comes to get miles is late for their like play date at the hollow suite right he's dressed in his tuxedo and he's like come on something's happening in hong kong and we have to get there and o'brien's like obsessed with playing tongo and so Bashir oh, okay. placed Tonga with him in his tuxedo. So um, <laughs> I knew there was another episode and I, I had to look it up. But yeah, oh, definitely. So they, you know, they, they don't go into that world again because of the whole mm. MGM potential lawsuit, but they definitely mm. loved it enough. And they knew the fans' love for the episode that they toyed around with it here and there.
0: Yeah, it's interesting thinking about these kind sort of threads that are picked up going forward, because obviously, you know, we've talked a lot about nostalgia. We talked about it being you know not just a kind of throwback but kind of some of the elements of this franchise as being slightly Do you know what i mean as, as kind of looking to a previous era uh but yeah it's it, it's unusual i think to think of this episode as a jumping off point but in some ways it is uh particularly in terms of the bashir character i think you're right this is the i mean in terms of like great bashir episodes i think this is this is definitely up there and it's also he's He's very much the hero. You, you know, I mean, he's obviously he's the hero because no one else knows what they're doing. So he's, he's the only one in the game who can, who can, uh, sort of save the day. But you've also got Garrick, interestingly, sort of pushed into the role of the villain, um, weirdly. Yeah. So you've got... And they do that in DS9 a few times, don't they? There's empoch Nor where Garrick and Miles are kind of uh, up against each other. But in this one, you know, you've got this friendship between these two guys, but you've also got these very different approaches and these very different ideas. And yes, is Bashir's fantasy ridiculous and naive? And, and Garrick makes a lot of good points, you know, when he's saying, you know, this is not what um, a real secret agent would be like. You know, not just in the in the Obsidian Order, but, you know, in real life, he has this line, a real intelligence agent has no ego, no conscience, no remorse, only a sense of professionalism. Um, Much closer, as I say, to the kind of Bond of the novels or maybe some of those early Connery movies. Although even there, I think Bond in any form has a certain amount of ego. Uh, I think the idea of a Bond without ego is a bit of a challenge. But um, it's interesting, see, and you end up by the end of the episode, the threat is not just that posed by you know, Dr. Noah, the crazy megalomaniac. It's actually the threat posed by Garrick who's going to make a kind of calculated, yeah. uh, sort of a callous decision. And I suppose, I suppose that's, that's the element of Bond, which can be quite shocking, uh, certainly in some of those novels. I mean, where at times he comes across as sort of borderline psychopathic, you know, um, and in some of those earlier films, and, and even in later films, you say like Brosnan has edges of it as well, is that kind of... Um, a sort of callousness a sort of indifference to suffering or kind of um cruelty even at times and i think it's quite interesting that they i think by putting that on garrick it it makes bashir more heroic in the in the kind of star trek mold which is quite optimistic and quite kind of idealistic in a sense It, it helps him to kind of occupy that space in a way that is uh sort of satisfying and that kind of validates it in a way because you've got Garrick making these kind of niggling points, but then you've got Bashir coming back and actually he's the one who saves the day, albeit weirdly, by destroying the world. <laughs> There's that yeah. great line. Then uh, Kira has that great line. You've destroyed the world. <laughs>
1: yeah. My guy, she has a blast doing that role. It's amazing to watch all of them. All of them. Um no but you're right, you're right. Um it's funny, I mean to to, to kind of bring it back to Craig Randomly, you know, we, he's, he's such, Craig's Bond is such a killer. But because of who's writing him and the way the story unfolds, he's also, you know, he's the toughest in terms of like, he looks like someone who, who could kill someone with his bare hands. And yet, he's also the most sensitive Bond. He's also the most like well rounded Bond in some ways, right? And the one that's been most, um, the, the one that's been most shaped and molded by, trauma and the loss of the women in his life, you know, uh, obviously you talk about Skyfall, he goes to his mother's grave, you know, and his, well, his parents' grave and obviously Vesper and like, and so yes, he's the, he's the most brutish of all the bonds, but he's also the most, uh, uh, emotional and dare I say, sentimental of, of all the bonds.
0: And he's defined by his past. I mean, he's defined by Vesper, even, you know, into the the, the last film. Do you know what I mean? That's uh-huh. that's a part of it. That's not, you know, these threads sort of don't get forgotten. And I think one of the things that is interesting about Quantum of Solace is whether it's a good Bond film or not. You know, it picks up, it literally picks up where the last film left off. Yeah. Um, and that that, I think, is something that they've done that is quite new. I mean, in terms of talking about how does, you know, how does Star Trek reinvent itself? How does Bond reinvent itself? Of course, we had this with Discovery, you know, how does Star Trek reinvent itself for the umpteenth time? Uh, It's going to be serialised is a big part of it. And obviously, you you know, uh, Mm -hmm. now with Picard as well and and so on, there's a move towards more serialised Star Trek these days. Discovery headed by uh, a Bond girl, Michelle Yeoh, um, you, you know, playing, as it turned out, two brilliant roles, um, in that show, but there is, I think, the the Craig Bond films. Certainly, by the time you get to the end of this last one, it does feel very much that over five years—not uh, over five years—that over it's about fifteen years, isn't it? It does feel very much that over five films, they have taken this character on a journey, and every film remembers the ones before. And sometimes that can be a bit clunky. I mean, I think Inspector this sort of idea that it was all, you know, tied together by some weird master plan uh, just seems preposterous to me or it did at the time anyway but I think that this sense that this is a you you can sort of see how this character goes from who he is in Casino Royale to who he is by the end of No Time to Die is something that you don't get anywhere else in the Bond franchise. You certainly didn't get that with Piers Brosnan. I didn't get a sense that he'd particularly, uh, changed. You, you know, and, and that is something that we're seeing more in Star Trek. And it, and it started with DS9 to a large extent. And, you know, Bashir is the perfect example of that. As you say that he's a character who starts off being quite unlikable. And, you know, they were getting letters. People didn't like this character. People were sort of saying, should we drop this character? Um, and they decided instead to. Develop him and to make him, uh, you know, increasingly more and more interesting to the point where he can become a fan favourite character along with the others.
1: Yeah, no, completely. I mean, I think again, you know, I um, now I'm just repeating myself, but I do think that that this is for for from terms of the character there is. Bashir before our man Bashir, and then Bashir after. So I think it's, it's a turning point for the character. And I also think, while I, I think it's too much of a stretch to say it's a turning point for the series, I do think that a lot of things are established in this episode. The seeds of many things, whether it's Sloane, whether it's Vic, uh, you know, a little bit of Eddington, uh, and, you know, and Garrick's kind of, like, real insight into Bashir's persona there's a lot in this episode that pays dividends in in later seasons
0: well thank you as ever for joining me Carlos um before we go do you want to let our listeners know if they want to track you down on uh social media and and argue with you over the finer points of uh 25 Bond films because by the time this goes out you'll have seen the most recent one as well what's the best way for them to find you um, well, I am,
1: uh, extremely active on Star Trek Twitter and it's, uh, my handle is at double Mac because, uh, as I always like to say, in addition to my love of Star Trek and Bond, I also love coffee and my, uh, drink of choice is the double Macchiato. So, uh, come find me on Twitter at double Mac and we can argue about Armand Bashir, uh, no time to die and anything else in between. <laughs>
0: you have that in common with james bond actually james bond hates tea and loves coffee certainly in the books uh which it, it marks him out as unusual i suppose for a british you kind of imagine i'm sure Bashir drinks tea uh you, you know you think Bashir tea, does drink it's a kind of british thing yeah, yeah yeah but um you know bond like you is a coffee lover yeah uh, well you know uh, i've i I've, I've, I've been compared to worse people a pleasure as always having you on the show carlos and we'll see you again soon